This is the Unsung Interview. Introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. In 2007, Premier League manager Harry Redknapp was asked about the importance he places on the diet of his footballers. He said, if you can't pass the ball properly, a bowl of effing pasta's not going to make that much of a difference. Well, it's fair to say attitudes have changed a little in professional football. And as the Premier League makes its return for the new season, in this episode, I speak to a performance chef who, for over a decade, has been feeding and fueling the country's top footballers in the surroundings they're most comfortable in, their home. Rachel Muse began her career as a chef at some of the UK's best-known hotels before she traded in the mania of hospitality for the altogether more personal setting of private dining. With her company, Discreet and Delicious, she now trains performance chefs to ready them for the unique challenge of one-to-one catering for sport's most famous faces. Rachel provides insight into the close bonds private chefs forge with their clients and how trust features at the very heart of that relationship. We discuss the intriguing dynamic between chef and footballer and the vital third ingredient, the club nutritionist. Rachel reveals her joy of cooking for a wide variety of nationalities, explains why it's important to stay out with the family domestics and describes why she regularly finds herself on the phone of footballers' mothers. She also ensures that I will never get my hands on a Nando's black card. Rachel spoke to me from her home in Salisbury a few weeks before the new season kicked off. We began our conversation by talking about the start of her career as a private chef. I started being a chef before it was cool to be a chef, when it was a job like being a plasterer or a seamstress or whatever. It wasn't a cool job, it was a job. It was a trade. And then very quickly things started to change. And I was like, oh, this is weird. It was suddenly cooking shows were all over the TV and everyone was interested in, in all that sort of stuff. And now I think people become chefs and think they'll get a TV show within six months. They're not going to. But, they, you know, they, they become chefs because they think it's cool. Great, good, but it's highly unlikely they're going to be a celebrity within six months. When I went into private households, it was still very, very old school and it was old families with old family money. And then things started to change. People in the music industry, people in the fashion industry, people in the film industry started to want to have private chefs. And then it became much more kind of like glitzy. I've worked for all the big families. I've worked in lots of very high profile jobs. And the real important thing is that you keep your mouth shut for your own protection. And also you keep your mouth shut because what you see in someone's house is private. All the, everything you see, everything you hear, any information you overhear, not because you're listening at a door, but because they're talking right in front of you, all of that belongs within that house. It is never to leave. It is never to come out of that house. And that's what I say as I'm training chefs. I say to them, um, you wouldn't be taking light bulbs from the house. You wouldn't be taking knives and forks. You wouldn't be taking cushions from the house. All of those things belong in the house, as does all that information that you hear. Uh, it belongs in there. And that's why I think we've been so successful and we're so trusted. It's because we're not going to be on the phone to a gossip column or or a journalist and say, oh, look, um, so-and-so wears purple pants or whatever. Because we're just, that's, you know, it's sacrosanct. You're highly trusted when you're in, you know, to be in someone's house is an act of trust. 
and you have to behave in a way that shows that you understand that trust and never to betray it. Because you are discreet and you, you don't go telling tales to the papers that actually that is one of the main things that is attractive to a particularly a footballer who's, as you say, every waking hour is documented on social media or in the papers and, and they probably just appreciate that discretion. But there are others out there, other performance chefs, and you know we won't put names on this because we don't want to open any beef to uh, to use a culinary pun. That do kind of say, listen, I've just look who I've cooked for today. Look, look who I'm working with, which is obviously the other side of the coin. And that's their approach, and that's their way of doing it. That's great. I think that we get more clients by. Uh, people thinking that we are part of their closed-door world, part of their private world, because young footballers, um, well, all footballers, but particularly the young ones, you know, they'll want to get the best table at the busiest club on a Saturday night. Good for them, great. They'll want to be known at them. They'll want to, you know, breeze through the queue, straight up through the road, up to the best table. Good for them. They want that. But they don't want that all the time. When they're at home with their family or with their friends, they want that to be separate and not out in the open. They want that to be their private time. And we really understand that and really respect that. But I am really old school. And you see a lot of chefs now who are doing selfies with their clients or doing selfies with their clients' cars or hinting who they work for. And I think that is dangerous. I really do think that is dangerous. For your own security, because, you know, someone could think so-and-so didn't score that goal, so-and-so let a goal in, so-and-so did this, so-and-so that. I had a bet on that of 20 grand or 20 pounds whatever, uh, because of that, I had a fight with the missus because of this, because of that, or I've lost my job because I've, whatever, whatever the reason. And they think, right, okay, well, I know how to get to that footballer. I can follow their chef and slide in through the gate behind them. And yeah, who knows how that goes. Was there anything that surprised you when you first started working with sports people, particularly footballers, when you were seeing that setting, that intimate setting that you, you kind of, nobody else really sees, you know, that almost privileged position. Was there, was there anything that stood out to you initially? I was a private chef for maybe 12 years, something like that. And then I got the first footballer client. And I remember him really, really clearly, a very, very lovely man. I started cooking to this footballer and realised that, ah, oh, yes, there's a business to be had in this the stars aligned. And so by the time I cooked for the first footballer, I was really quite an experienced private chef. So the differences then, really, the main difference was the involvement of a nutritionist, which of course is the vital element. His nutritionist was happy with what the player was eating and there were no real overriding instructions in what the player should eat because that particular player was a very, very interesting human being 
and they're still playing now. You could give them a whole range of food and they would automatically, by some sort of like programming thing, like homing pigeons can get home. He had a sort of internal programming thing that he would eat the right amount of protein, the right amount of fat and the right amount of carbs. It just felt natural to him. Like he could just do it automatically. And I wish I could do that. I'm kind of interested in finding out about the, the rise of the private chef. Is it, does it tend to still be down to the footballers themselves? Or is, it, is there a, more and more cases now where the clubs are saying, we recommend you do this so that our nutritionists are happy, so that when you're away from the training ground, we, we've got a good idea that you're not eating a load of crap, basically. Things are changing. In the 10 seasons we've been doing that, this, we've, been, we've seen it change a lot. And each club runs its own kind of, has its own vibe. So you get it, lots of different information in lots of different ways. We will get clients from word of mouth, from one player to another player. Usually we've got a really strong relationship with the nutritionist. And the nutritionist sees a player who is in a new country or speaking a new language, you know, in it, they've come from somewhere where English is, is not their first language. And they arrive in the UK. Um, and I think quite often the nutritionist thinks this person's a bit of a fish out of water and the way to make them feel more, one of the ways of making them feel more at home, especially if they haven't got a partner and haven't got children and they kind of come by themselves or maybe bring a brother or a school friend with them that they can feel a little bit fish out of water and home doesn't feel like home. I think having somebody at home cooking for you and knowing dinner's going to be on the table at seven o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock if you're Spanish, and knowing that that's going to be got a reason to start making that bond with a physical location and start feeling, oh yeah, this is my home. Because it's a very, very transitory life. And if you're away from home in a, in a foreign country, feeling no real connection with the club, no real connection with the players, feeling like home and, and family is a long way away, and then travelling with the club, home and away, home and away, that actually involves players getting on coaches, getting on flights, getting on trains, going somewhere, staying somewhere the night, then doing the same process in reverse, often late at night, early in the morning, late into training the following day. Da, da, da. Then when you get back to the house that you've been allocated as your home, that doesn't feel like home either. You can be really kind of like disconnected. Do you find that, say for these players, say for, for example, you've got an, an African footballer come over, obviously the nutritionist has given you information that says, please make sure that his food contains this amount of protein, this amount of carbs, et cetera, et cetera. But to then, do you find yourself knocking up meals that are linked more to their their home, their culture? You know, so so Afri African recipes and yeah, absolutely. We're, I would like to think that we've got a, if I say a high level of cultural sensitivity, that sounds like something you read for in a sociology manual. But that if someone is Spanish or Spanish speaking, each player is married up to a chef. And that hopefully that marriage lasts the whole season. We have uh, quite a lot of Muslim clients. We very much respect the halal. And I'm often told that when I cook for a halal client, that they've never had a sauce as nice. And I say, well, 
That's because when I'm tasting a sauce, I think to myself, what this needs is a bit of red wine, which of course you can't use because it's halal. But I'm tasting it going, oh yeah, this is just a bit, just a bit flat, this sauce. It just needs a bit more body. It just needs a so you put a bit more you like turmeric in it and you put a bit more cumin in it it's like oh it's still not right is it and so what I do is I cook with a lot of red grape juice which once you cook it down has got a bit of that kind of red winey feel to it without it ever having been anywhere near alcohol you get some of that that kind of flavor that I feel is missing when I'm tasting something that's halal. Uh, Muslim clients will eat it and go, this is amazing. Oh, it's really good. It's lovely. Good tip. What's the relationship tend to be like between the, the you know, the private chef and, and the footballers? Does it tend to be quite uh, warm and collaborative or is it is it sometimes quite transactional? People are people and every every relationship is different and relationships develop over time, either for better or for worse. When I start off the relationship between the chef and the client, I'm really teaching them what to expect socially and how how to relate to each other, really. And I always say to I always say to all of the chefs, it's a privilege to be in someone else's house and the idea is to be friendly but do not think you are friends. If they want to be chatty, if they've had a bad day and they don't want to chat, fine. You make the food, put it in front of them, you ask them if they've got everything they need, you tidy up the kitchen, you say goodbye, I'll see you tomorrow. Some days, bad days, they've lost a big match or they've missed the penalty, something like that, really in a horrible, horrible mood. There's nothing you can do. You just do, you do it politely and emotionally neutrally. Do it, leave. And there are other days when it's all quite a party and everyone's dancing on the tables and says, do you want a rum and coke? And you're like, oh, yeah, go on, I'm a little one because uh, you have to work. Because um, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to refuse them. You don't want to go, no, but you don't equally, you don't want to go, oh, yeah, give me the bottle. Because yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. After. It, but it's, it, you know, it, you have to be alive to the fact that it's someone else's house um, there are all sorts of emotions that go on in a family, good days, bad days, screaming at the children, all those sort of things go on. And you see it all, you hear it all, but you can't be involved with it. You, you know, if anyone says to you, and what do you think? You can't pick a side. What I think is it's probably uh, dinner on the table in 10 minutes. Yeah. You've got to be careful not to blur the lines. Yeah, exactly. And And... In terms of attitudes in the industry, you know, if we, if we go back 20 years or something to Arsene Wenger was seen in football as being a bit of a revolutionary in terms of, the, you know, the focus on the player's diet. But around him, there was still quite a lot of cynicism about, well, if you can't kick a ball, it doesn't matter what you're having for, for tea sort of thing. But I'm guessing now that as the, as the pendulum swung the other way, particularly if you're saying that over the last... 10 years, you know, you've found that the, the business has, has gone from strength to strength and you're getting more footballers on board. Uh, like, are there still cynics out there or is pretty much everybody on board now as to the importance of this? I think it's one of those things that's not first on the list for the budget. But as clubs become wealthier, and that's a separate discussion, I think some clubs almost have... Uh, the situation of like we're sitting on this massive stash of cash what else can we spend our money on 
oh, look, we could spend that money on food. And I'm kind of overblowing that. But it's football now is obviously, football's always been highly competitive, but now it's much more scientific. It's the marginal gains thing, isn't it? If a club is putting a huge amount of money into it and they are at the top of the table, then people think, oh, well, maybe that's something we should do too. And if food helps with even getting you two points in the whole season and those two points take you into the Champions League, how much more money does the club have for being in the Champions League? I don't know what the figure is. But if that comes from spending an extra 200000 on food in a year, uh, it's the fear of missing out, isn't it? These other teams are doing that. They're getting, they're getting those Championship League places. What are they doing that we're not doing? Oh, they have a better food provision for their players. They've got a bigger nutritional department that is spending more time talking to players, doing the skin folds, doing the body comps, doing all of that. Maybe we should do that. It's the fear that if you don't do it, that other team that is doing it has an advantage. So compared to 10 years ago when you sort of first started working with, with footballers, I know this is a tricky one because you won't have the data, but if you had to sort of estimate the percentage of, of clubs that uh, their players have got private chefs at home compared to how it was 10 years ago, what, what would you say that it has changed quite dramatically? In the Premier League, at least. In the Premier League, yes, it has changed a lot. There are some clubs where pretty nearly all the players in the regulars in the first team will have a chef. And there would be other clubs where basically none of them do. And they're still in the premiership because it's, it's almost, um, it's almost like being at school and it's called have this rucksack or it's called have this haircut. Then, you know, everyone else will have that rucksack or that brand of rucksack or that, that a similar sort of haircut. Each, first team has two captains they probably have the captain who is the captain who wears the armband but there's also like an unofficial captain who may or may not be the same person as the official captain who is the leader of men who might be slightly older and the younger players go to that person for moral advice that's again very grandiose but you know guidance about girlfriends and moving house or cars or car dealerships or, you know, that sort of stuff, a bit of a sort of older brother ethos. Like a club sage. Yeah, exactly. And that person quite often is a, is a literally a role model. Like they'll all look at that person and think, oh, he's doing that. He's now driving that car or he's decided to get a spa at home. So if that person, the sage, as you like to put it, has a private chef or doesn't have a private chef, then everyone else will think, oh, well, that's the cool thing to do. And it, it is changing. It's becoming more socially acceptable, I think. There have been times, maybe I can think of one particular instance about eight seasons ago when someone said to me, oh, Rachel, you don't need to come around tomorrow. And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, booked in. I wasn't ramming down the throat. It's like basically saying to you, well, you're going to get invoice for it anyway. And they're like, no, no, you don't bother. No, it's okay. And I was like, okay, sure. Well, I'll see you the day after then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see you the day after. And then I, you know, came back the after missing that one day. Um, and I was like, yeah, 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 y
Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing was, uh, my mum was coming around and I didn't want her to think that I was wasting money on a chef. Okay. All right. And I don't think that attitude is prevalent anymore. I think players understand that it's an investment. And if you can extend your playing life, you know, your recovery, the pain in your knees, the pain in your hip, the pain in your ankles, if you can keep the machine moving in a kind of pain-free way just for one more season, and part of that is eating well and recovering well and sleeping well, and that, that again, is where the sage in the, in the dressing room, who might be one of the older ones, you know, 28, 29, maybe even 30, and they say, lads, you know, your hips will start to hurt. I know you're 17 now, you're 18 now, your hips are going to hurt. And I tell you, eat properly, sleep properly, and you'll play for longer. They're doing our work for us. They are our PR campaign. If left to their own devices then, particularly the younger players, what sort of thing do they eat? I just think back to my days as a student at uni. You know, if you'd Mm. opened my fridge, it would have been mortifying. Well, I have seen some things in my time. Players who basically eat breakfast cereal as every meal that they have at home. Sometimes when they're really on it, they'll have some milk in the house and they'll put some milk on the cereal. But most of the time, just be dry cereal. Are they, are they ever kind of tempted by, you know, the temptations that get all of us? You know, the McDonald's, the, the Nando's, yeah. The Domino's? The... Yeah, there's all of that. I have been to Nando's once and I'm never, ever going to go back. And I went because a client said to me, can you make me this thing uh, like they're making Nando's? And I said, absolutely not a problem. I'll go to Nando's and find out what they're doing. I'll order that particular thing that you asked me to make, and I don't know what it was. Uh, I went there, and it was god-awful. It was absolutely – and you have to pay before you get your hands on the food. So when you, have, when you have to put your hand up and explain this is wrong and that is wrong and the other thing is wrong, then they give you a voucher so it's free when you come back next time. It's like, you've not understood what's happening here. There is no next time. No, there's no next time. Um, I'll take that voucher off your hands if you like. Oh, it would have gone out of date in about 2018. And it's so expensive. Tiny little portions. The chicken's all dry. It's all bad. Bad. Are there any other strange requests you've been asked to cook? Like, oh, you know, one of the players has said, oh, can you please, I really like this. Can you knock this up? It's, it's culturally, it's just opening your eyes again and again and again. Because when you ask people, what would you like for your dinner? Because that's how it works. The nutritionist will say to us, on this particular day, the, the best thing for the player to have is this many grams of protein, this many grams of fat, and this many grams of carb. And you can make that into 10 different meals, 100 different meals, 1,000 different meals. And the trick, of course, is to make it into what that individual will willingly eat, will enjoyably eat, and say, woohoo, that's the best dinner I've had this week. This is great. So if you ask somebody what do you want for your dinner, you know, if they're 
the West African, they'll say jollof rice with uh, with fish. Uh, North African, they'll say, oh, I'm fancy a tagine. If they're Spanish, they'll say, I want a big slice of ham um, with a salad. Um, you know, they're all these, and, and if they're Italian, they want pasta first, and then they want to have meat as a separate thing. You know, all these different cultural bits of information that an individual has in their head as being normal food, which is great. There is no normal, but, you know, you what you think is normal is different from what I think is normal. It's all different. So, and you say to them, what do you want? And they tell you, I'd like this with that. And you write it all down, and then you work out how you're going to make it to fit in with the, the proteins, the fats, and the carbs that the nutritionist wants that player to have. Um, and it's it's an absolute revelation. And... Once, once the player understands what you can do, that you're not working from recipe books, you've got a set of skills and you can make anything into anything within some level of reason. You know, I can't make a pork chop into a trifle. But, you know, if somebody says, oh, I'd like sweet and sour sauce on pasta, I say, sure, if you want sweet and sour sauce on pasta, I've got no dog in this fight whatsoever. You have that. Or, you know, I want to have um, pesto on Chinese noodles. Okay, have pesto on Chinese. I, I mean, I, I, it's your mouth. If you want this, I will make it for you. Particularly what people will say is, when I was a little boy, I came back from training and my gran used to make me this with that. And you're like, okay, can you describe it a bit more? No, I'll tell you what, I'll get my mum on the phone and she'll explain to you. Okay, so get mum on the phone. Or you may even get gran on the phone and she'll say this with that, with that, with this. And you're like, oh, okay. So would this be quite thin or would it be quite thick? Like what's happening here? Okay. So you go, okay, great. Yeah, I think I can do this. You make it and you present it to the player and they go, yeah, quite good but it needs to be more of this or more of that or whatever. You go, okay, well, let, I'll write that down. Next time I make it, if you trust me to make it again, I'll make it like that. But once they realise that they can ask you for anything and that their feedback is welcome, you know, this is a collaborative affair. You tell me what you want and we'll work together and make it happen, hopefully. And once they realise that that's possible, then the real relationship starts. I've got to say the concept of you knocking up the family's favourite dishes and on the phone to the mothers and the grandmothers of these football players is, is just so adorable. <laughs> you know, it's just so, but it also goes against the grain a bit. I think people might be quite surprised to find that although you get information from the nutritionist that says, please have, you know, X amount of this and X amount of that, that actually you still have largely a blank canvas to do as the footballer pleases really. I think people would be quite surprised at that because you, you think high-performance food for an athlete and, you know, your mind immediately goes to, you know, you know greens and pasta and, you know, the, the, that, that's pretty much it. But actually being able to knock up, you know, these more sort of homely dishes goes again to what you were saying before about making the footballer feel more relaxed in their, their own environment and feel a bit more at home. Uh, that's, that's quite sweet about that. I mean, that's, that's the thing I most love about my job. Food is about so many different things. And you eat for lots of different reasons. I eat for lots of different reasons. We eat for pleasure. We eat maybe because we're bored. We eat because we're scared. We eat because we're happy. We eat because social reasons. We eat for so many different reasons. Hunger is one of them. 
And to think that a, to think that an elite athlete is different from us and they only eat because it's fuel is ridiculous. They eat for all the same, exactly the same reasons that you eat and I eat. They eat for all of those reasons plus one little extra one, and that is for their performance, for their fuel, for their recovery. If we can tick all those other boxes of eating for pleasure, eating for social reasons, you know, just getting people around a table and talking together, breaking bread together, if that is all enjoyable and fun and ticking all those complicated social psychological things in our head and it does what the nutritionist asks then everyone's happy everyone is happy so how does a typical day look for a private chef do they arrive i presume obviously it's it's mainly the evening meals because they'll tend to have their lunch at, at training won't they so do they do they arrive knock up the meal and then leave as the players and sometimes their families are sitting down or do they hang around in another room somewhere? How does it work? Some players will have a chef two days a week, two evenings a week. Some will have three evenings a week. Some will have five. Some have, because they've got families, they want uh, breakfast and dinner or lunch and dinner because then their partner and their doesn't have to sort out food for the children. There's usually a WhatsApp group which has the nutritionist on it, the player on it, and the chef. And everybody knows all the information that there is. And it's not, it's clear. It's, it's no, no Chinese whispers. It's out there. It's a team project. We're all going to share our information with each other. This is it. So that's how it starts. Probably on a Sunday night or maybe a Monday morning on the WhatsApp group will be the uh, the nutritional plan for the week for that individual player because different players will have different versions of that depending on their body composition, what position they play, whether they're injured or not. There are many, many different elements to all of that. All I need to know is those figures, those amounts in grams of the proteins, the fats and the carbs, and there might be some macro information as well, like try to use lower fibre, try to use higher fibre. Once we've got that, the chef can ask the client, the player, what do you want to eat? What sort of time? I mean, we say it's like more nicely than this, but what we're trying to elicit is what would you like to eat? What time? What numbers? They might say, oh, you know, I really fancy a risotto, um and and you go well you know uh, it's low carb day today and you want a risotto and it's not i tomorrow's high carb day so tomorrow will be a great day for a risotto they go nope i want it today okay so you think okay i've got various strategies for that and basically the strategy is just put every single vegetable they like in the risotto so that when they're eating the risotto, it does taste like a risotto. But if you actually analyse it, if you actually like to smear it out on the plate, there'd be four grains of rice and everything else would be vegetables. <laughs> right. I exaggerate, but only slightly. Or people say, you know, I want a lasagna, it's low-carb day. Okay, you sure? Because tomorrow would be a better day for it. No, I want it tonight. Because, you know, they're eating for lots of different reasons. They're hungry. They're eating because that's what they really fancy. They're grumpy. Uh, you know, when they were growing up, Monday night was always lasagna night and they just want to fall back into the old habits of Monday night being lasagna night. Okay, well, I'm going to just put two layers of lasagna in and everything else will be like layers of courgettes and layers of this and layers of that. We'll fix this one way or the other. 
Or they'll put their foot absolutely down and say, no, I want a proper lasagna, don't muck me about. And then you've got two choices. You give them a very small portion or you give them the whole lasagna and you turn your back and think tomorrow's another day. And do you get it in the neck from the nutritionist if, if that's, that's happened? No, no, you absolutely don't. Because we all understand that if they're eating fresh food, high quality fresh food, that is still a win. Because, you know, they are getting their bloods done. They are getting their skin folds done. Uh, so the nutritionist does know what's going on. Even if they do go, I've, I've literally, I've only been eating chicken Caesar salads, nothing else. And the, the, the nutritionist does the skin folds. Go, yeah, I, I don't really think that's true. And does their blood work. Yeah, I'm really not certain that's true. So there is nowhere to hide. Back shortly to my conversation with Rachel, where she reveals why chefs are often the first to know when a footballer is on the hunt for a transfer and describes how she's ensuring that foreign footballers don't end up behind bars. Trust me, it's not what you think. But first, a word about our unsung charity partner. Leading social care charity Community Integrated Care deliver 10 million hours of care annually to people with learning disabilities, autism, mental health concerns, dementia and complex care needs. Their revolutionary inclusive volunteering model sees it partner with sporting events like the Rugby League World Cup and UEFA Women's Euro, enabling thousands with complex barriers to enjoy sport. To find out how you can work with the charity or access their support, visit communityintegratedcare.co.uk. Now back to the interview as Rachel shares a stealth vegetable technique that promises to help any parent with a toddler who seems to think a carrot is an orange javelin. There's a great nutritionist called uh, Graham Close who's up at Liverpool, John Moores, and he told me his phrase for this is the stealth vegetable. Uh, so grating courgettes into bolognese's, uh, grating carrots into things, cook that down. No one knows they've ever been there. Um, <laughs> go, I don't eat vegetables. And he's like, mate, I'm sorry to tell you, but you do now. It sounds like cooking for, for my kids. Certain amount of espionage that does go on. Certain amount of, um, but you, you know, you invariably you do it with the with the players' permission, with their consent. Um, right. Maybe, okay. maybe the first time you do it, you do it without their consent, and then uh, they're all still standing at the end of it. And or you know, putting lentils in things. Lentils are great. Lots of protein, lots of fibre. Uh, cook lentils down into anything. No one's going to know that. Um, and people like that. I don't. I don't eat lentils. You do, yeah. Uh, also, being always get some like, puree some lentils into that. They'll never know. Uh, but you also, you know, as you get closer towards match day, you probably want to have less fibre in your diet because that is going to that's going to be the stuff that's going to sit in your stomach or sit in your digestive tract and mm -hmm. to be harder to eventually you know pass out and lots of players have hard time eating the the just a couple of hours before a match when they really need to fuel but they're a bit you know jittery a bit nervous I fully understand that. They don't want to eat, even though it's, they really need to. So then you've got to load them up. And each nutritionist does it slightly differently, and we follow what they ask us to do. We are not the police. We're absolutely not the police. We're there to help them make good decisions, to make it feel like it's not a completely controlled environment. Mm -hmm. It's to make them feel like they've got agency, but they've also got guidance. The, the new season's starting, um, so I'm interested to know when your engagement with the footballers begins and ends, do you stop the day that the season ends or do you continue with the summer? Do you begin again in pre-season? How does, how does that work? 
Uh, good question. Some of our athlete clients have a 52-week-a-year contract with us because that's what they want. So they, those chefs are working year-round and we are providing support for them so they can go on, the chefs can go on holiday and then I go up and cook usually or someone else goes in and cooks for them uh, for a couple of weeks while the chef's away. Uh, but the vast majority of our clients are a season-long a season long contract um, and that starts whenever they want it to start uh, because we'll still be picking up clients, new clients, in November, December, usually and so Mm -hmm. so the contract starts from that point through to the end of the season interestingly um you know clients know that we are not going to talk some clients say oh yeah let's have a contract for this year but let's have a break clause in january you're like oh break clause in january Mm, okay but this is why they tell us these things, because they know that we're not going to be tweeting that sort of information or yeah. putting information out there in the public domain, because they they feel they can trust us. And and how often does it happen that a player has said to you, can I have a break clause in January, and then that player has, has ended up leaving in the transfer window? I, I always think that January is a big old load of nonsense, because in reality, how many people do move in January? Very, very few. Last season, it was absolute chaos because of the World Cup. Quite a lot of people thought, well, I'll go to the World Cup, I'll come back a megastar, and Paris Saint-Germain or, you know, Real Madrid will be on the phone. Um, so I'll just... And then it, and it's the transfer window immediately afterwards. So, like, I'm just going to... Those between the start of the season and the start of the World Cup, a lot of people were just like, let's just get through this. I don't feel I'm still going to be at the same club the other side of the World Cup because I'll be an international superstar. So that worked for some people, didn't for most people. So when people came back from the World Cup, they were like, oh, yeah, Real Madrid's not on the phone. I haven't heard from Barca. Uh, I guess I'm staying. Better get a chef then. I know you sounded the caution earlier saying you don't get into chefing because you think you're going to end up getting a TV deal or be really famous on Instagram. But given that part of your role is to teach new chefs coming in about the the traits and skills required to, to be a private chef in the home, what advice would you have on people who kind of see themselves going into this and, and what do new chefs tend to struggle with? Is it, is it more the discretion rather than the, the actual cooking? Very good question. Uh, you have to be a confident chef. You have to be confident at cooking most things in a short amount of time and not think, oh, well, I need to have a prover or I need to have, uh, I need to have uh, a sand mixer or I need to have a thermomix. These are all, you know, bits of fairly expensive catering kit. You need to be a real problem solver and happy to work by yourself that is the main difference between working in a hotel or a restaurant and working as a private chef as a private chef you've got to figure it out by yourself and you know also you're going to be putting the food on the table taking the plates up from the table interacting with the client uh the the chef i trained most recently who is turning into be 
absolutely top quality. When I first uh, cooked with him, he and I, the chef and I, went to uh, this birthday party for uh, for somebody. And great chef, really well organised, really, really lovely. And I said to him, can you please take the canapes in to the guests? And he's like, now? Yep, now. Uh, it's just, you know, that's literally outside his comfort zone. Chefs are usually very comfortable in the kitchen. And then there's what we call the pass, which is where you literally pass the food over to the waiting staff or the restaurant manager, the restaurant staff. Then it's their baby and they do that and they do the wine service and they do the plates and they do the bread and butter and the water. And, you know, they, they do all of that. Other people do that. I cook and I put it on the pass. That's my job. Like, not anymore, mate. No, your job is laying the table. He was okay laying the table. There was no about that. But the thought of taking the food to somebody and maybe having a, not a great big long chat about politics, but, you know, if they want to say, you know, have a word or two with you, then you have a word or two with them. Um, Yeah. That was just, that was for him, that was like... Yes, it's the social it's the social interaction, actually, isn't it? Because even then, you know, you, you compare it to working in a restaurant or a hotel or something, but actually, you know, a lot of people will think about um, club chefs as well, mm-hmm. you know, where you've got, you've got embedded within the club, within the mm-hmm. training ground. But even that is, is very different to, to, the, to the, yeah. the element of the private chef. You've got that additional kind of intimacy. You're in the home. It's only one client. It's it's very different in that respect as well, isn't it? And that's why I always wear my uniform. I'm not a very formal individual. I'm, a, you know, a chatty. I'm an introvert, but when I'm talking to somebody, I'm informal. Uh, but I always wear my uniform. I always the letter of the law about what how a chef has to behave in terms of my hair up no makeup, all of those things, because there are rules around what footwear you have to wear. There are rules about this, there are rules about that. I follow every single one of those rules to the letter because I am there as a professional. I'm dressed as a chef. I'm being a chef. I take it as I'm a professional. And what I'm doing is I'm helping another professional. We're two professionals. They have an unusual job. I have an unusual job. I'm helping them. Not like, oh, like they must worship me and go, oh, this is amazing, Rachel. No, but that's what we are. We're two professionals. There's no, I don't ever entertain the idea that the person I'm cooking for is internationally famous. They're a person and I react to them as another person. That's it. There's no complicated power structure. Which again, they probably appreciate because they'd, they'd probably have, I don't know, 50 interactions a day and 49 of them will be, oh my God, look, it's such and such who plays for such and such. Whereas the interactions they probably value the most are the ones where they know that the person they're speaking to isn't going to report everything that's been said and also who just treats them just like any other person. And exactly, you know, quite often, I would actually say it's more complicated than that. And I would say uh, an elite athlete, you could be someone who is so well-known that I would say 80% of people on this planet would know their name. A really, really famous, famous person because of their skills with their feet or their, you know, whatever, however it is they're doing their particular sport. Um, and they get up in the morning. Um, they might be in a good relationship. They might be in a bad relationship. Quite often um, we see relationships that 
aren't particularly uh, well-functioning. And uh, they will go, they will drive to training. They'll go to training. At training, you're just told, do this, do that, do the other thing. Now, you know, you've got this sort of massage with this person and then you've got this and that, da-da-da-da-da. You drive home. You talk to your wife, you take the child, put it on swing, go on the swings, or do a bit of media stuff, you know, blah, 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 blah. In the course of the whole day, maybe nobody listens to you. Nobody. Everyone's telling you what to do, do this, do that. Uh, you might not have a great relationship with your teammates. You might not even really understand your teammates. You might be the only person who speaks Hungarian, whatever, in the team. And you're just like looking around going, I just don't know what's going on here. I'm a fish out of water. I don't know what's happening. Uh, but you go home to your, you know, presumably Hungarian wife or Hungarian partner. It, it doesn't mean to say anyone is listening to you. Anybody. Everybody wants something out of you, like sign this for me, or you can feel really unconnected. And then you have somebody who says to you, what would you like for your dinner? That's a moment that's for you. You can say what you want. And it's really, really, really powerful because when I ask somebody what do they want for their dinner, I write it down and then I start to write all the lists and everything that goes around that. But I show them that I've listened, listened to them because I put in front of them what they have asked for. And that is a great bond of trust between mm-hmm. two human beings. To be to someone ask a question and someone listen to the response and show that they have listened to the response. It's a huge, huge thing to do. It's in the format of food. But it's just a comforting, life-affirming connection between two human beings. This brings a sort of new meaning to the term comfort food as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Who doesn't like to think that someone is listening to them? And we, you know, we do. Eating is a very kind of, you know, a caveman-y, you know, really simple human function. And that combined with listening is really, really powerful. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is... People don't understand that. You know, it took me until about two, two and a half years ago to realise that's what we're really doing. It's just a simple human connection, a human understanding of another human. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And it goes back to what we were saying before about the relationships you have with them. And it sounds like, on the whole, the majority are quite warm, friendly, collaborative. You know, it's not... It's not transactional, which is the question I asked you earlier. It's not pay this woman, she makes food. There's a there's a whole ecosystem here going on. You know, you become almost part of their part of their home life, especially if they've come from abroad. You know, you you become the performance chef when I say you it becomes almost a bit of a, a bit of a crux, maybe. I do spend a lot of time um, explaining to people who've come from outside the UK how the bin system works. I mean, you can explain that a lot of times, still don't get it. Especially the French, because if you're French, you chuck out everything every night. Like, literally, everything goes out on the street every night, and you never see it again. You don't have to put it in a certain thing, nothing like that. You just chuck it out. That's it. Uh, and also explain to people who've come from outside the UK, this is your council tax. If you do not pay it, you will go to prison. And they're like, that's serious. Yep, that is that serious. So it's that and the bins, basically. I love the thought that we have a troop of private performance chefs to thank for half of the Premier League's foreign footballers not being in prison for not having paid the council tax. 
<laughs> I mean, that, that's taken unsung heroes to new levels of community service. Oh, not to know how important that is, aren't they? They just think, oh, it's, just, it's written in this the foreign bins. language. Yeah, the bins. <laughs> Honestly, explaining the bins. My thanks to Rachel for taking the time to speak to us during her busiest time of the year. If you'd like to know more about her work, there's a link to Discreet and Delicious in the show notes, along with a link to Rachel's Instagram account. And if you know of anyone with a unique perspective from behind the scenes of Elite Sport, get in touch with a recommendation for a future unsung interview or story. Just head to unsungpodcast.com where you can suggest a guest. My thanks again to Rachel Muse for speaking to me for this podcast, which was produced by Matt Cheney. Artwork is by Matt Walker, and the executive producer is Sam Barry. My name is Alexis James. Thanks for listening and catch you next time on Unsung. <laughs>